This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, it's Marianne. Welcome to No Place Like Home. Before we get started, a couple of quick things. First, Anna Jane and I want to encourage all of you to tune in for Season 2 of Years of Living Dangerously, which starts Sunday, October 30th on the National Geographic Channel at 8 p.m. Eastern. This is the award-winning, Emmy award-winning climate series where Anna Jane and I got to know each other and became friends during Season 1. And I had the great honor of being on the red carpet in New York City for the premiere of Season 2, along with a lot of the stars like uh, Ian Somerhalder and Nikki Reed, America Ferreira, Giselle, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and we got to see this first episode with David Letterman, and it's incredible. It's going to blow your mind, so please tune in. We also want to let you know that this episode is sponsored by the Sierra Club, which encourages you to get out there and explore, enjoy, and protect the planet, and we hope you'll join our 2 million members and supporters who are working to power this nation with 100% clean energy. Thanks also to the band River Wireless for our theme music. And now, on to this episode of No Place Like Home. Hello, I'm Marianne Hitt. And I'm Anna Jane Joyner. This is No Place Like Home, a show that gets to the heart of climate change. Today, we'll be talking about what the Olympics, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Finding Dory have in common. And we have a great interview with Renee Miller about pop culture, social media, race in the climate movement, and her favorite world-saving celebrity vampire. But first, Marianne and I have some catching up to do. So, the Olympics, did you see the Olympics, Anna Jane? Oh my gosh, yes. Amazing. So incredible, so inspiring. And the opening ceremony, for those of you who may have missed it, halfway through the beautiful, incredible opening ceremony from Rio was this powerful video about climate change, about the urgency, about the threat that it poses, about the solutions that they are coming up with in Brazil and how it ties all of our fates together as nations of the world. It was just incredible. Did you, did you see it? I was actually, um, I didn't see it, which I almost never, never miss the Olympic opening ceremonies, but I was working late on a deadline and I just remember getting all these like flood of texts from you and from other friends being like, are you watching this? And me being like, oh my God, I have to text Twitter and see what's going on. And just like getting a little teary eyed as I kept trying to go back and watch it, but MEC wasn't, wasn't replaying it at that point. So I was just following along on Twitter and I was just reading all of these like mind-blowing sentiments from people you wouldn't normally, you don't normally engage in in the climate conversation. And I definitely felt like something momentous was happening. And again, I mean, what really blew me away is this is the Olympics after all. I mean, the Olympics are the farthest thing from political that, that you can be. And um, I think people watching the Olympics don't expect to see any kind of a political agenda. And what really hit me is that for the rest of the world, this isn't about a political agenda. This isn't a political issue. This is about our combined fate as human beings. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that's just something, especially at this moment in the United States, when there's this huge election going on, it feels really divisive. Climate change is a part of that conversation. When you look at the global landscape in this incredibly momentous, inspiring moment, it's it's just so clear that that's not how the rest of the world sees it. You know, for the rest of this world, it really is about all of us coming together and acting together to save our common, you know, fate. You know, one of the other moments where I feel like we kind of broke through that political uh sort of a story about all this is Leonardo DiCaprio's um, Oscar acceptance speech. And I just saw an article in the Washington Post about some research that had been done. His speech was created the moment when more people were talking about climate change than, than ever before on Twitter in history. So his one speech created this huge cultural moment when all of a sudden all of these people uh, that had never talked about climate change before, everyone was talking about it. And we, these cultural moments are so rare and they're so big and they're so important. And um, uh, just one other one that I also jumped out at me was Ellen DeGeneres with the movie Finding Dory. She did a little like PSA about saving the Great Barrier Reef. And a few weeks before she did it, um, this big study had come out about how half the Northern Great Barrier Reef is dying from climate change and it didn't get that much attention. But then she does her little video and the Australian environment minister starts a Twitter feud with her and suddenly all this, this attention is is being paid to the fate of the Great Barrier Reef and climate change that before, was, you know, we couldn't break through. So there's something there. You know what I mean? Don't you think that like these little cultural moments, there's, there's something something there that is is pretty incredible. Oh, I think it's huge. I think that there, you know, I read this study that um, Leo's speech, who, by the way, he's been my crush since I was 11 years old, so I feel pretty proud that we're on this climate saving train together. Someday he'll be a guest on our podcast. <laughs> it's just a matter of time. Put it out there, Leo. Um, but yes, like I think that he, you know, the, one of the things that celebrities can do, A, there's a sort of inherent weird trust um, in things like the Olympics or Leonardo DiCaprio or Ellen DeGeneres because they're so familiar. Um, but also I think they speak in everyday terms, you know, they speak in language that scientists and a lot of, you know, even activists or politicians, you know, can't, can't speak in and don't speak in. And I think that that, because of that, they're able to reach and inspire people in a way that, um, that the climate movement for for whatever reason, just hasn't been able to do on that scale. And they also, of course, have a ginormous reach. I agree. And I think we're going to be seeing more and more of these cultural moments when this climate conversation is breaking through into people's living rooms. It's breaking through onto their social media feed. And what do we do as a movement? What do we do as a climate movement to harness that attention into action? I think we've got a lot of work to do there. And that's what we're going to be talking about today in our interview with Renee Miller, social media guru, and stay tuned because it's going to be great. Yay! Hey, my name is Sam. I live in Baton Rouge. Here's your dinner party climate fact for today. This past August, southeast Louisiana experienced an epic flood that damaged at least 60,000 homes and killed more than a dozen people. Meteorologists say it was a once in 500 year flood. However, in just this past year, the U.S. alone has experienced eight 500-year floods, which again, are only supposed to happen once every 500 years. Our guest today is a former entertainment lawyer, a pop culture aficionado, general badass, and she's currently a social media strategist at Purpose.com, which is where we met and worked together. Um, 
She's taught me so much and made my life brighter and more awesome in so many ways. And I can't wait to share her brilliance with all of you. Welcome, Renee Miller. <laughs> General badass. I would like to be like saluted. You should get the General badass. card. <laughs> so Anna Jane and I uh, became friends working on The Years of Living Dangerously, which was this Emmy award-winning series about climate change. Yes, and yes. we were in an episode with... The uh, sexy vampire Ian Summerhalder, uh, our BFF. <laughs> My name is Ian Summerhalder. I am an actor by trade. The reason I care about climate change is I'm from a very uh, delicate ecosystem in the Gulf Coast of Louisiana. Everyone, just hold on to your underwear <laughs> and pass me a fan. <laughs> yes. So, uh, so I I understand that you have an appreciation of, of oh. our our mutual friend, mm -hmm. and I thought that might be a good place to start. So, yeah, should we talk about sexy vampires and how Ian, Ian Summerhalder is a sexy vampire? Yes. Well, let's just say I've been around a long time. I've learned a few things. So, Damon, tell me, what is it that I want? If that man ever plays any other role than a vampire, I will revolt. I will not. <laughs> I will not survive. Like, I don't think I'll survive, but he won't survive. Like, I will melt this country down. Like, vampire only. All have right. you guys watched Vampire Diaries Ian, at all? you have been warned. <laughs> you have been warned. I, I tried to for after we filmed with him, and it was just too weird. I was like, I can't. Like, you, you being like sexy and like, no, can't do it. Sorry. So obviously he is like a very uh, big son in your pop culture oh. celebrity uh, oh. universe. Yes. What do you think about his activism and how he's doing that? Uh, um, I think it's actually, here's what's like dope about sexy vampire activism. In that like, um, people are already following you. They're already obsessed, right? Uh, I would I would love nothing more, if, if this is the only time I get to say this in the world, I would love nothing more than for Ian Summerhalder to bite me. Anywho, <sighs> uh, like if all of these things are happening, right? Like women are following you, girls are following you, men are definitely uh, following you. Like using that platform, using that voice for something amazing and important and crucial is like, it's such an easy next step. And I feel like oftentimes people just get so paralyzed. They get so worried. Like, I have a platform. What do I do with it? But what do I say? And if I say this, I can't say that. And if I say this, I can't say it. But it's like, use, use the platform, right? Like It was fascinating, too, like working with Ian. Because he wasn't the biggest celebrity that worked on years. Like, there was Harrison Ford and Matt Damon and... Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, but he had the most like rabid social media following. So our episode, I think actually got like the most viewership across all the episodes. It certainly got the most like online traction. And it was because he tweets something and it goes viral because his supporters are so crazy, like intense. And yeah, it was like, at first I was like, wait, who's he in Summerhalder? Is it Can't because I have his Matt supporters Damon? are crazy intense or those baby blues are crazy intense? <laughs> because... Oh my gosh. That's true. That's a good point. He looks at you and sees your soul. It's just. Yes, that is true. We know from being in person. <laughs> um, we are just curious talking about pop culture. Like, if there's like a pop culture moment that has to do with climate that just like really stood out to you, is like that was powerful. 
Oh, um, let's see. What's a what's a campaign that we like used pop culture in? Climate change is real is like the biggest one. There were like I think it had something like over three hundred million people reached with climate change is real, and it essentially was um, a ton of memes being shared over and over again, and like all of these sorts of like cats in sunglasses and babies shooting lasers and like the craziest things, but basically trying to reinforce the idea that climate change is real and sort of like shift away from climate denial and really push us in another direction, which is incredibly successful. And like so much so that uh, when Hillary Clinton, when Senator Clinton as a, or I guess you should call her by her most Secretary. like yeah her most senior title which is Secretary Clinton. So when Secretary Clinton Clinton released her climate plan as uh, her candidacy for president, she released it under the hashtag climate change is real. And then last at the DNC when she accepted her candidacy, she also then said climate change is real. So like that's how incredibly successful it was. It became just part of pop culture lingo or part of the lingo within broader culture. And there was a lot of different like celebrities and brands yeah. that were a part of that, um, like pushing it out. Like Ian participated. Mm-hmm. Um, Funnier Die participated. Leonardo DiCaprio. Leonardo DiCaprio uh, Smosh Brothers. Uh, the Lumineers the, did yeah. on Instagram. Marty the Dog. Yeah. There's like, I, I, across the board, tons of people. It was like a really cool, really fun, and really like changed the narrative on climate change, I think, in America. Using pop culture. That's great. President Obama. It tweeted, yeah, like three times. Why we're on this vein, how can we better utilize this kind of like amazing tool to both as individuals and as organizations to engage people on this topic? Like what are the, like what's success look like and how can we do it better? Mm. You know, I think uh, this is going to sound trite, but like I think the best thing that you can do with regards to talking about climate change and really any issue, right? Like if there's like listeners out who are like, I love, you know, that we're talking about climate change and it's so important, but also I think, I don't know, breastfeeding your baby is really important. Like whatever the issue is, I think the best way to engage with people on it, especially on social, is to be as authentic and real and truthful as possible. And two, it's being like platform agnostic. Who cares where you put it? Who Like it's so unimportant where it is that it ends up and way more important that you're sharing something that's real because that's what people connect to. Well, and that's one of the goals of this podcast, we hope, is that I, there, isn't, there isn't that much of a kind of real authentic conversation happening around Mm -hmm. climate change. It tends to be more either scientific or more wonky. And we're trying to draw in the real, honest, authentic conversations people are happening, having. And so um, I I would love to hear more about my understanding from Anna Jane is that you have been in the climate world for a year or so. Mm -hmm. Is that right? And so can you tell us like, what were you doing previously that landed you there? And now that you've been thrown into the deep end of this pool, mm-hmm. uh, how does it strike you? And what is exciting? And what is sort of perplexing? And and what is messed okay. up? And- <laughs> um, yes, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you all of those answers in like a weird jumbled way. So let's <laughs> let's go on this story. Well, we're being authentic um, here. <laughs> exactly, being my weird jumbled authentic <laughs> self. Uh, I was an entertainment lawyer in Los Angeles for a very long time. And uh, loved it, right? It's like pop culture. It's 
logical thinking. It's strategic thinking. It's all of the things that I like really enjoy. So as uh, an entertainment lawyer, I basically did like transactional contract work, right? Um, and then that started to like fizzle. It was, it, was, it was like a really hard road making that work for a number of reasons. Um, pr- you know, primary among them is being a woman. Um, but it was like super tough. So uh, it was like not it just wasn't picking up and it wasn't making me happy. And I was getting like more and more upset and more and more like downtrodden. And I said like, I wanted to do something like way, like something that I felt was like crucial and important. And I wanted to talk about things that I thought were crucial and important. Part of the reason I wanted to be an entertainment lawyer is because I recognize that like the way that African-Americans are depicted on film is important. It's crucial and it's important. It changes things and it turns a page for things. Um, And so I did a lot of work around, uh, African-American film and television appearances as a lawyer, but then decided like, well, what if I worked on it on, a, on the flip side? Like instead of, because, you know, I was like, I'm not going to write a show, which I could, uh, whatever. I just pat myself on the back. Oh, I could sure write you. a show if I wanted to. <laughs> he and Summerholder was starring it, I'm sure. Oh, oh. <laughs> I think my knees went out. Um, like, you know, I wasn't going to write a show. So I was like, what if I did something like that changed that or start or like had that conversation? And so I was looking into like, social justice work and social impact work um, and trying to figure out where to like land and how to put myself and how to place myself in that. And I honestly like randomly and accidentally came across purpose and in coming across purpose, like it's not that purpose is doing a bunch of like uh, racial justice work. They, they weren't, they aren't, they'd love to be. Um, but it's more that like purpose was the right like fit for me, it was the right group of people. It was the right opportunity. It was the right like types of campaigns, um, and so we, uh, I got hired by them, and they were like, "Well, look, like we have this climate lab, and you have a perspective that is like unique, and this climate lab is trying to do things within pop culture." Like, why don't you hang out with this climate lab? And that's really how I, like, got started in, like, working in climate change. And um, it's so interesting because, like, I I still wouldn't – I still don't and wouldn't identify myself as an environmentalist. I've literally never purchased, like, products tested on animals. I don't – uh, like I've always recycled, even like before recycling was a thing in New York, like I grew up in New York. I just have never identified as an environmentalist. And I think that was um, unthinkingly because there are so few black people in the environmental movement. And so like it was very clearly not a movement for me, right? Like, oh, no, 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 environmentalism, that's for like white people with Priuses who do yoga and drink like weird teas I can't pronounce. Um <laughs> And and having worked now in climate change in, in in the environmental like in the broader environmental movement as well for a year, like it is for white people who drive Priuses and do yoga and drink teas I can't pronounce. Like within the broader context of the movement, like there is just such like there's just no diversity. It like really lacks diversity. And because it lacks diversity, it lacks diversity of thought. It lacks diversity of effort. And really it lacks diversity of impact. So so yeah, I think like working within the space was completely accidental. But now being in this space, it's like uh, my presence is important. But even more so my like um, critique of the space is like crucial. Yeah, I'd love to hear more about that, because I think it's a particularly egregious with climate change, given that the people most impacted tend to be marginalized communities, largely 
communities of color. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet their voices are strikingly missing in the movement trying to identify and implement solutions. Do you have any thoughts on like how how the kind of climate space, space could do a better job of raising up leaders who are people of color? Yeah. I wonder how it would be done, right? Because I think, for example, five years ago, the criminal justice Uh, like if you talked about criminal justice reform, you were just talking about criminal justice reform, right? But now if you talk about criminal criminal justice reform, you're talking about racial justice as well, right? Like those two things have become intertwined. And I think it's because the people who started doing the work or the people who were doing the work decided to take a specific lens. They, They almost like layered on racial justice on top of criminal justice. And I think that's like a smart move. Like if we're looking for a group to like, tag and follow, like that would be a smart move for the climate movement is to just decide like we're going to put a racial justice lens on top of climate change and we're going to move forward with climate change, really focusing on like making it just and making it right and and recognizing that, you know, the work that we're doing is really uh, like about affecting or or impacting and improving the day-to-day lives of people of color across the world, like across the globe, right? Um, And so like putting that sort of like justice lens on it, I think is kind of the most crucial. And I think it's a thing that can very quickly help the climate change movement like turn as far as like diversity, as far as really seeing like day-to-day impact. Because I feel like the climate movement has spent a lot of time having heady conversations and spent a lot of time pontificating and really becoming high on its own supply and not enough time being like, great, 1.5 degrees Celsius, awesome. But what how, what does that translate to for Renee on Wednesday, right? I couldn't tell you. I work in it. I've worked in it for over a year and I couldn't tell you. How does that translate? Like fixing that, how does that change my Wednesday? The, the, one of the exciting things that I've seen happening is the climate justice movement is really emerging and there is incredible leadership by people of color. And uh, we have had some really powerful campaigns within the Sierra Club uh, around coal-fired power plants that tend to be located in mm-hmm. African-American communities, Latino communities, um, and then are related to or tied to higher rates of asthma and water pollution. And so I feel like something new is kind of bubbling mm. up. And your your analogy with overlaying racial justice on criminal justice reform is interesting to think about overlaying climate justice on the climate movement and mm-hmm. whether they are sort of in a mutually beneficial relationship or there's an evolution. I mean, do you have the sense that something sort of new is happening or do, is it more... Um, we have a really long way to go. <laughs> Probably some of both. <laughs> a little bit, right? A little of column A, a little of column yeah. B. Um, I think. I think. I think you're right. I think things are bubbling, right? Because um, because people are putting a name to it, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm from Brooklyn, so I can like speak really like intimately and clearly about Brooklyn and and about like New York City, right? So the Bronx has one of the highest asthma rates in the country. And it has also one of the highest asthma deaths in the country and has everything to do with the fact that like the New York Times and Wall Street Journal is made in the Bronx and the the like factory that makes the paper disperses particulates into the air that like Bronx kids are breathing. And then those Bronx kids are struggling in their PE classes, right? Like 75% of kids have an inhaler. So there's that, right? But nobody puts a name to that. That's just a thing that happens in the Bronx. That's just a thing that is like 
in the background in the Bronx. Kids aren't like, is it weird to have most of the kids in my gym class have to use an inhaler? They have no idea. They have no clue. And and even like parents are like, well, what? how do I, I don't, I'm not sure what does that mean? How does that, and so like nobody's putting the term like environmental racism in their minds. Nobody's using that term and that's intentional, right? The Wall Street Journal doesn't want people using that term. Well, and that, and that, pattern is I have seen that all over the country where people are living next to a coal plant. There's lots of people around it who are sick and they have never, the dots have never been connected to that big thing over there. People oftentimes don't know what it is. So that's one connection we have to make. The other connection, um, that I, you mentioned that I'm curious about is like, what does this mean for Renee on a Wednesday? And I feel like that's part of what we're trying to get at with the podcast is mm-hmm. like connecting this to people's everyday lives in a way that we have just completely failed to do um, yeah. on climate change. And, and so that's going to be our journey that we are on together in doing this because there are so many intersections, but I don't know, could you, is there one that comes to your mind of a way this does affect you on a Wednesday or is that still like a goal we need to, we need to. It's a good question. <laughs> um, how like climate change affects me on a Wednesday. <laughs> I honestly, like, I think the easiest thing for like, for any of us, for anybody who's in the climate space to like point to is food, right? I feel like food is the quickest, fastest thing to point to and people get it. They know exactly, like everybody knows when carrots goes up at the grocery store, right? Like everybody gets it. And so it's like, if you can point to food and like really break down how the cost of food is rising because of climate change, like I think that's the easiest, fastest. And also like, I know how that affects Renee on a Wednesday, right? I can walk into the grocery store and be like, Mm, climate change, my avocados, right? Like I can see it and know it and like feel it in my pockets, right? So why is the price of your avocado climate change on a Wednesday? Right, because uh, uh, if if the earth is getting hotter, there's less water, there's less moisture, there's less rain, less rain. Uh, and dif- in different, it's affecting different people in different places in different ways, right? So like there's extreme drought in California. There are floods in uh, certain parts of like Central Africa. Um, climate change has actually shifted when the raining season, when the rainy season happens, which has shifted the kind of crops that you can plant. And so like literally rain, climate change affected rain, rain affected the ability to grow plants. So like rain affected the ability for my avocados to grow in California because drought. And so like, because of that, avocados are now more expensive. They're fewer and far between. And like, when was the last time you bought a ripe avocado? When was the last time you bought one that wasn't (laughs) rock hard? And then if you bought one that wasn't rock hard, when you cut it open, it was already done. Like it was mushy and done. Like you can't find a decent avocado and that has everything to do with like rain and climate change. I I call myself the avocado whisperer. Uh For my my quest for the perfect avocado. So uh, (laughs) anyway, one last quick question for me. As people are dealing with all of these life and death immediate struggles in the country right now, Black Lives Matter, gun violence, people walking out their door not feeling safe. How does does climate change fit into that puzzle when it seems maybe more remote? And Mm -hmm. and even though it is a life and death struggle for some people, as we've been talking about, maybe they aren't connecting those dots. Yeah. Okay. So here's where I think the climate community has an ability to be incredibly radical, right? Um, In like, if, if the intention is to connect 
climate change to Black Lives Matter, I think the move is food. And I think the the way to do that is to talk about and create more like urban gardening to talk about like the importance of Black people being able to grow and like have their own food because currently they're like dependent on a system, right? Black people are dependent on a system and that has everything to do with like economic oppression and economic inequality. And so like if Black people can't make money enough to purchase the food that is available in the grocery store that is affected by climate change and is becoming more expensive. But like if they can't make money enough to buy that food, they can't like put food on the table. That black life doesn't matter. In order for black lives to matter, black people must have like access, right? And so this is where like climate community can come in and talk about like economic inequality. They can talk about our accessibility, like accessibility to food, accessibility to like outdoor spaces, accessibility to clean air air and like really tie in like urban gardening and urban farming with like clean air, with lower asthma rates, with things for kids to do after school with like educate, like sort of like tactile education. Like this is where the climate community can really come in and be a part of. But I think that starts with like actually being a part of communities. And I mean, I think even within like um, many of the like Latin communities in Southern California, like East LA, this is prime time for East LA. Like you go into East LA, you go into like Atwater Village and all these other places and you tell those people, like you tell those kids, like, hey, elementary age school kids, like we're going to put a garden on the top of the elementary school. You know what else we're going to do? We're going to put a garden in your neighborhood. All you have to do is sign up and then your parents can take you and drop you off. Oh, your parents also want to be a part of the urban garden? Like for sure. Why not? Right? Like boot, like I think I think that's the place to do it. Like, and I think Michelle Obama figured this out a long time yeah. ago. Absolutely. <laughs> Our hero. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we understand you have a podcast, so tell folks where they can find your podcast and find you on the internet. Oh, that's so lovely. I'd be, I be on them internets. Um, <laughs> I have a podcast. It's called Reparations Podcast. It is on iTunes, so you can just go find it, rate, subscribe, listen. Uh, you can find me at... Uh, underscore Renee Ebony. That is my first and middle name. Um, or if you have any criticisms, you can also send criticisms to at Don Lemon on Twitter. <laughs> so our podcast, we constantly just tell people to tweet the like bad reviews to Don Lemon. Excellent. <laughs> I think Excellent. he loves it. Well, thank you so much. It's such a privilege and honor to have you here. And oh, it's super my rich conversation. You give me a lot of hope and inspire me. So thanks again. Thank you. Yeah. All right, that does it. Anna, Jane, and I want to thank you all so much for listening. And big thanks again to our guest, Renee Miller. This episode was produced by the brilliant Zach Mack, who we hear is not yet using energy-efficient light bulbs at his new place in Brooklyn. Please subscribe to us on iTunes, and please also leave us a review on iTunes. This is how people find us, and it's the best way you can help the podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll be posting all episodes, updates, and information about upcoming shows on our Twitter page, at NPLH Podcast. So be sure to follow us there. If you like our show or have any questions, comments, suggestions, or want to be part of our show by reading a dinner party climate fact for an upcoming episode, tweet us. Again, we are at NPLH Podcast. And remember, there's no place like home.